0: Uh, Rebuild, let's begin the conversation. Let's begin the conversation in a Walgreens parking lot. All right, couple's driving down the road. Wife points over, says, hey, uh, pull in here. Husband pulls in, Walgreens, finds a parking spot, and he says, "Uh, yeah, what do we need? And she goes, we need to talk. Oh, boy. And he puts the car in park, and she says, "So, uh, so which one are we gonna be? And he goes, which what are we going to be? And he already knows the answer to that question. Uh, That evening, they had been hanging out with friends that they hadn't seen for a while. They were at their friend's house who hosted just a light uh, dinner uh, together. And as they were hanging out with these friends who had been married like, uh, I don't know, 12, 14 years, they began to discern very rapidly that that couple, they, um, they like each other. And it's not that they never argue. I mean, an, an argument kind of broke out, a disagreement about something while they were sitting there, while they were having dinner, but it didn't derail the evening. In fact, uh, as they uh, exited the house and the couple stands at the door, as they walk to their car, she like, takes her hand, it's on his shoulder, and she just kind of stroke his back a little bit. And the guy thinks, Man, how can you have an argument and be touching? 12 to 14 years, they they like each other. And and while having dinner, a conversation surfaced uh, about some mutual friends they have that had recently separated. Also been married kinda 12, 14 years. It's just like it just kinda drifted over time. And so here they sit in the Walgreens parking lot and the wife wants to know which couple are we gonna be? So like exhibit A, exhibit B, which one's gonna be us? Because they've been drifting. They've been drifting for a while. Which one are we gonna be? Now, in that Walgreens conversation, if there's something there that gets kind of unstuck, and if they move into whatever not drift would look like, they have just started a rebuild. They might not use that language, but they have just started rebuilding something. When we talk about a rebuild our underlying assumption is that there's something not entirely together that could be together and should be together. When we talk about a rebuild, we're talking about something that's not intact, that really ought to be intact, should be intact, and will take some work to get intact. That's what we mean by a rebuild. Now, uh, marriage conflict might be the farthest thing from your mind, my friends, this can be a rebuild, after you lose a spouse to death or divorce. This can be rebuilding spiritual disciplines after a significant time of drift. This might be something as simple and as hard as rebuilding hope after a deep, deep disappointment in your life, but we will all find ourselves there. Something's not together that could be together, that should be together, and we find ourselves in a rebuild. Whenever you have a rebuild, it's kind of like going from that, rubble, uh, to that, the process of building. And the question is, how do, you even, how do you even start that? I mean, those of you who are on the edge of knowing you need a rebuild in your lives, I mean, Jeff, How do you even get moving? How do you even get started? And this series, Rebuilt, we're focusing on an epic character in our Bible and an epic story. It's a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah lived, and the action we see happens uh, over 400 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, and so we scoop in on his story, and last week we just kinda of set, uh, set the context that Nehemiah was living in, which is, which is critical as we move through the story together. Uh, just to kind of a map that we looked at last week, Jerusalem on the left, Susa on the right. Jerusalem was like the capital of the Israelites, the Jewish people on the right. Susa hundreds of miles away, that's an epicenter for the Persian Empire. Nehemiah is in Susa, and he's inquiring about the condition of Jerusalem. Now, there's three words there, war, exile, and return. There had been a war, tragic war for the Jews. 587 BC, the Babylonian army had demolished the city of Jerusalem, knocked the walls down, burned the great temple of Solomon to the ground, and so there was the war. But then the king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a philosophy of deportation. If you want to get the people from, you want to prevent them from getting like hyper patriotic, just move them out of their country. And so most of the Jewish population was deported out of Israel. That's the exile. Uh, This is known historically as the Babylonian captivity. But then a couple generations later, people were able to return and they started to trickle back slowly and to put the pieces back Together and so Nehemiah, he has friends arrive from Jerusalem. He's serving the Persian court in Susa, and he asks this question: "Man, how are the people doing? How is the city doing?" And last week we looked at two devastating words that he hears, and the two words were these: "The people are in great trouble and distress. It's a mess. Those walls that were broken down still just piles of rubble. Where there should be gates in the city wall, it's like nothing. Trouble and distress, and Nehemiah crumbles." This is dismantling. this is disruptive. Literally it says, "He sat on the ground and cried. He sat down and he cried. He is undone. But it was this devastating tragic news that moves Nehemiah toward moving toward this rebuilding project. But this is the quest, isn't it? How do we move? How do we move from rubble to rebuilding? I don't mean getting something fully built. I just mean getting liftoff getting it started. How do we move from rubble to rebuilding? And so today our focus is on uh, Nehemiah chapter two. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to find this or a device where you can follow along. Nehemiah chapter two. And uh, as we follow Nehemiah's early stages of movement, what we're going to do is we're going to watch four different experiences Four different experiences in Nehemiah chapter, a little bit in chapter one, but mostly in chapter two. Uh, And I think these are common experiences of someone who moves from rubble to rebuilding. And so it's my hope, it's my deep hope that if, if you find yourself in some kind of a rebuild in this season of your life, that one or two of these would just really capture you, give you an aha moment, and give you just some just some guidance and perhaps some inspiration in what might be next in your rebuilding process. Four experiences that Nehemiah goes through, and the first one, the first one's kind of strange, and we're gonna spend a little bit of time here. Experience number one just has to do with grieving your losses. Grieving your losses, and by grieving your losses, what I mean by this is allowing yourself to experience sadness, over those things that really should make you sad, grieve your losses, and some of us just plow through life without allowing ourselves, just to pause, and to sit in our sadness for a spell. Uh, chapter one, verse four, verse we looked at last week. Nehemiah gets this devastating news. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down, I wept. Guy just cries. This is a leader. He is a strong leader. He gets this news. He sits down, and he weeps, and he tells us this. And this wasn't just for a couple minutes. It's like he said, then I mourned, I fasted, I prayed. It's like this goes on for weeks, this condition of sadness. What is Nehemiah sad about? My friends, grief, grief is about loss. It's about losing something. And so when Nehemiah sits down and he cries, I go, what was lost? What was this sense of loss that he was experiencing? So uh, let's start with that just that city wall thing. Uh, If if life ever takes you like to Tuscany uh, in uh, Italy, maybe that area around uh, Florence and uh, Siena, you will encounter old walled cities that are intact or at least partly intact in the area of uh, Tuscany. Now, what a wall did was during a time of war, you were on the inside and it kept your enemy on the, <laughs> on the outside. That's what a wall meant. Uh, when the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed, it's not just that Nehemiah has a, a passion for city projects and civic projects. It's like what a wall means is security. What a wall means is safety. What a wall means is honor, Israel, long after the war, the walls are in rubble, what this meant was insecurity. What this meant was vulnerability. What this meant was shame. And it wasn't just shame for the people. It's like the reputation of the God of Israel had been trashed. And it's like there's this loss, this loss of wholeness, this loss of beauty, this loss of something that was supposed to be together that wasn't together. Nehemiah sits down and he weeps. He grieves his losses, experience number one. Often we talk about grief, and we actually use the word lose or lost. You'll be in conversation with someone and they'll go, yeah, uh, it's been a hard year brother or sister dies of cancer. We, we lost my brother this year. You'd be in conversation with someone and they'll go, yeah, it's been a hard year. We lost my mom this year or we lost my dad this year. You know, and at, at Christmas time, holiday season rolls around and they're supposed to be there and they're not there. And it's this, this missing, this loss of something that should be whole. It doesn't surprise me at all that sometimes when someone finds themselves in a job transition, we speak in terms of job loss. It's three, four, six weeks after the layoffs happen in a company, and we just get tired of being asked the question, hey, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Say, well, I'm in between right now. It's discouraging. It's, it's, it's loss. Nehemiah would listen, grieve your losses. There's a sadness that kicks in from feeling like you should be about something that right now you're not about. There can be loss. There can be loss over opportunity. You're 23. And you turn around a couple times, and you wake up, and you're 33. And you go, what do I have to show for the last decade? And there's this loss of having kind of frittered away not just days, but months and years. And there can be a sadness that creeps in out of lost opportunity. It could also be sadness over lost direction. Hey, I thought you were a pre-med major. Yeah, I was. What are you now? I'll have to get back to you on that. (laughs) And it's this, what next? You had direction and now you don't have direction and trying to figure that out. And it is lost. You, you lost something. Something should be there and it's not there. I had an interesting experience this weekend. This weekend, I was in a store. I see this guy that I've known for, for a long time, but we haven't, I haven't talked to him for a long time. And he's like in that self-checkout lane, right? And so I kind of stand at the end of the self-checkout, you know, and he's starting to put his uh, couple different items in, in a bag. And so he's done and you know, I'm standing there and, Very, very interesting. He reminded me of a story of something that happened to him. I already knew this, but he reminded me of it. Years back, there was a family company. He was in the family, and he decided to sell the family business and to let go of the position and to let go of the responsibility and to let go of the authority of that company and kind of being in control. And he spiraled after that into this Depression, and it was his decision to put the company up for sale and to sell the company. I'm thinking, why is he reminding me of this story? What could this possibly have to do with me? Letting go of position, letting go of responsibility, letting go of authority, hmm, let me think, let me think. What could this have to do with me? Oh, maybe it's that little thing that two months from now, when I hand off the senior pastor baton to Pastor Aaron Buer, I will be releasing position and authority and responsibility. Still employed here, but definitely not in charge. After being in charge for a long time. And here we are by the self-checkout, and this guy looks at me, and he smiles, and he says, call me. (laughs) He says, when you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep, and you're thinking, I just need a drink, and I don't think he meant herbal tea, (laughs) call me. You see, there can be a feeling of loss, Weird emotions, a sadness that drifts in even when we initiate the process of letting go. So while I got you here, while I got you on this topic, I, let me share with you an image about grief that uh, I, uh, was explained to me recently that, that I think is like, like, like super, super helpful. And so this is for free. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Grief. Uh, we, we, when we lose something, and here I'm, I'm talking about a loss that, not just a little loss, a light depression, but something that really, really, really shakes you up. We, we tend to look at grief as something kind of linear, meaning, meaning, you know, here is where you get walloped, and it's the beginning of grief, and then kind of the middle of grief, and down here somewhere is the end of grief, and so you just kind of like move through it in a linear way. The problem is, is that you find yourself sometimes after a significant loss, getting, getting ambushed, hijacking your emotions, when you think you should be through it and you're not through it and it kind of messes with you. So uh, the, the thing I heard was that rather than looking at it kind of in a linear way, look at it more kind of like a, kind of like a spiral staircase, where you are moving, but then it kind of loops back on you and loops back on you again. So it's just say someone here uh, gets walloped by a broken engagement. I mean, an engagement and like the announcements were already sent out. And then there's like, a uh, guy says, you know, I, I, I'm thinking now, I'm just not ready, we're just not ready for marriage. All right. So your original wallop, original grief, you, you had a plan, now you don't have a plan and you're thrown into this space and you start to move through that disappointment. But then uh, six months later, you hear that Mr. I'm not ready for marriage is engaged to somebody else. And you go, that's all right. That's okay. I'm happy for him. And it kind of Wallops you again, but not quite as bad as the first disappointment. It's um, less consuming. And then maybe you arrive at the date on which you were to have been. Married, and you realize this would have been the day. It, it, it kind of gets to you again, but again, a little less consuming. I think this is a great model because the idea is you might feel here I am, right back where I was. It's possible that you're moving. It's possible that you're moving in a healthy way, but this just has a way of looping back on, on us. You understand? You understand what I'm saying here? You lose someone and you grieve at the funeral, but then it comes the holiday season when they're not there, and then you arrive at their birthday and. Then and you might r- arrive at the anniversary of their death, and it it comes back. But it's possible that it comes back in a less consuming way. And so uh, it, this this model, I think, is helpful for me in in moving through my griefs and also walking with other people uh, through their own. You're saying, Jeff, thank you so much. We appreciate uh, this uh, little seminar on loss. But dude, I'm in the rebuilding process here. Why in the world are we talking about sadness? We're talking about sadness because it seems to be a main feature of what Nehemiah is experiencing. And my mission is kind of like to bring his experience to to us and to see how it uh, uh, integrates with the the experiences that we have. And so, uh, in fact, uh, chapter two that we're about to look at, the word sadness is used four times in three verses. Sadness four times in three verses as Nehemiah works through this. So one reason is that, I want to talk about sadness because it's critical to the story. The second thing is that, my dear friends, I don't think we do a great job with grief. I don't think we do a great job with grieving our losses. I think we tend to push them down and try to push them underground. I think we try to stuff them. I think we try to numb our sorrow. There are the usual suspects. We numb our sorrow through alcohol and drug use. We can numb our sorrow through busyness. If I just stay busy and I'm constantly on the move, I won't have to think about this and feel sad. We can try to mask or to numb our sorrow through retail therapy. Amazon Prime is our help. <laughs> and, uh, there's this empty space and we try to fill it with stuff. What happens, I believe, is that we push stuff underground. It does have a tendency to surface later. What I'm trying to say is this. Sometimes, sometimes we have difficulty moving into the future because we have not adequately dealt with the past. Sometimes we find ourselves incapable of moving into a hopeful future with new dreams and new hopes and new work because we have not adequately dealt with the past. It is common for someone to experience... Something really traumatic in childhood and just to push it down. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to deal with it. And it resurfaces in your 40s or 50s. It does have a tendency to bubble up. I think Nehemiah happens to be a phenomenal example in our Bible of someone who's willing to feel sadness over something they should feel sad about. The reputation of God being trashed, people back in his capital, trouble and distress, the wall still a mess, all this rubble. It, it it does something to him emotionally, and it should. But look at me. Sadness will not rebuild that wall. He experiences sadness, but the dude starts moving. One day, in this week's long process, he says, all right, all right, enough, today's the day. And he gets up and he starts moving. And this is very challenging because it's risky. And for Nehemiah, this move was dangerous. And so experience number two just is move courageously. um, uh, Experience one, grieve your losses. Experience two, move courageously. What's happened is uh, (laughs) he let us know what his job is He is a member of the Persian court, but he actually has access to the Persian king, a guy by the name of Artaxerxes. Uh, The last clause of chapter one was this, where he said, I was cupbearer to the king. He interacts with the guy. But there is protocol in the Persian court, and part of that protocol is never appear sad in front of the monarch. (laughs) Why? Because in the presence of the king, there can only be fullness of joy. If you're sad, if you're discouraged, if you're dejected, you can get in trouble. You can get banned, you can get imprisoned, you can even get killed off with your head if you're sad in the presence of a monarch. So as he's delivering wine to the king Artaxerxes, and today is the day where he's gonna drop his guard and let the king know what he's really experiencing, this is a dangerous move and it's a risky move. That's why courage is required, because there is an uncertain outcome. So we read this in chapter two. I had not been sad in, the presence, in his presence before. So the king sees his, his demeanor and says to him, uh, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? You're not sick. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. In that culture, this was a no-no. Very dangerous, very risky. So how do you think Nehemiah feels right now? He's scared. And that's not my guess. He tells us, I, he says, I was afraid and not just a little afraid. I was really afraid. Check it out. He says, "Uh, uh, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look Sad. When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed in fire, why shouldn't I be sad? The place where my ancestors are buried has just been trashed. The walls are torn down. The gates have been burned with fire. Why shouldn't I be sad? I want you to notice something here. It's very critical. He's afraid, but he's moving. He's afraid, but he's moving. We have a word for this. I believe, I believe it's the word courage. It's it's long, long been observed that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the capacity to continue moving even through your fear. He's afraid, but he's moving. Uh, Check out this clause where where it says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. That is so powerful. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. Um, Fear. Fear can prevent you From accomplishing your most important responsibilities in your most significant roles. Being afraid that your child might not like you can prevent you from bringing the firm, loving discipline that you need to bring. Why didn't you parent in a different way? I was afraid. I was afraid of my kid. I was afraid they wouldn't like me. Fear can prevent you from your most important tasks in your most significant roles. Fear of exposure can prevent someone from uh, calling a trusted friend and saying, there's this habit that I have not been able to disentangle myself from. dude, come on, why didn't you deal with that years ago? I was afraid of the exposure. It was embarrassing. Fear can prevent you from walking into your first AA meeting or some kind of other recovery group. Fear can prevent you from walking into a church after an absence of several years. Fear can prevent you from opening your mail It's a bill, I know it's a bill, it's another bill, I don't even want to know, and into the drawer they go, unopened, just this thing, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, he's afraid, and yet he's moving. This is courage, it's powerful. Courage is our capacity to move, even when we're a little scared, and an outcome is uncertain, and we don't know what will happen. It's a powerful story in our Bible. Moses, who has been leading the Israelites for like 40 years, he is dead. And Joshua, who had been his sidekick, is pushed into the leadership position, leading the Israelites who did not exactly have a history of being highly cooperative. And Joshua gets these words. I'll write this down. You can look this up later. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, he gets these words. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be consumed with paralyzing fear. Because the Lord is with you. It's that last part. The Lord is with you wherever you go. He's with Joshua, he's with you. Be strong, be courageous. He's with you. That, my friends, is what I believe gives Nehemiah the courage to pick up the cup, to go in front of Artaxerxes, to drop his guard, and to expose his sadness. I believe that he is anticipating God's movement, which is experience number three. Anticipate God's movement. He he anticipates that God will meet him along the way. (laughs) The king asked a question. King said to me, so uh, what do you want? How can I not be sad while my ancestral, you know, family's place, uh, burial grounds is in ruins? The king says, you know, what do you want? Okay, here you go. Check this out. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. He first, he just shoots up this prayer. Okay, help me, help me, help me now, all right? I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant, that's Nehemiah, has found favor in your sight, then let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it I don't think the reader should see this coming. I think you'd find Nehemiah saying, now if it pleases the king, uh, could you please establish a restoration of Jerusalem committee? If it pleases the king, could you please someone, uh, have someone to explore, uh, maybe go there, find out what could be done for these people? Just those powerful words, send me, send me. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your sight, if I've been a good and loyal and faithful servant of you, send me so I can rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And the king says, the queen's sitting next to him. He says, well, how long will you be gone? When do you think you'll be back? Does that mean yes? And he gives him a time. I think it'll take this long, and then think this when I get back. And it pleased the king to send him. And so you think he's gonna race off to Jerusalem. He doesn't. He asked for some things here. Now he says, okay, let's move to the documentation. I'm serious. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let, uh, may I have letters? Documentation to the governors of the Trans Euphrates, that's the area around uh, Israel, so that they can provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. If it's not too much to ask, I would very much like to arrive in Israel alive. And there are some people who are going to be very upset that he is going on this rebuilding project. And so he asks for some letters signed by the king so that he gets safe conduct. Anything else? Yeah, you just can't go into the king's forest and start hacking down trees. So he wants permission for that as well in writing. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal parks, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city walls, timber for the city walls and for the residents that I will occupy. Uh, does it look like he's prepared? <laughs> does it look like does it look like Nehemiah is ready for this moment? <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, while we're on the topic, uh, if I could get you to sign here and sign here and sign here. It's like the, the dude is ready for this. And this last thing in verse eight is so powerful. It says, uh, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my request. Don't let, that's not a throwaway statement. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, Artaxerxes says, yes, yes, and yes. Because the gracious hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah is anticipating that God will meet him in his movement. Anticipate that God will meet you in your movement. You know what that means? It means you're not alone. Anticipate that God will meet you in your movement. Um, a week ago, last Friday, it was a little over a week ago, 800 people gathered at our Cascade campus to go through an evening on a thing about doing marriage better. 800 people, and hundreds of people watched online fantastic, unbelievable. A lot of people who are here for that making your marriage better thing were just, hey man, we're doing awesome, we're doing great, but this will be just a little tune up for us. Others are like, "Uh, uh, uh, no, we are after a major rebuild here. Listen, if you're in rebuilding mode in your family, either marriage, kids, or with your parents, or trying to restore harmony with siblings, anticipate that God will meet you in your movement. Anticipate that God will be good to you. Uh, Those of you in a job search, again, uh, using our gifts to serve other people through a vocation, it honors the creator. it it, it honors the creator when we're able to provide for ourselves and our family. Listen, anticipate that God will meet you in your movement. Anticipate that he will be good to you those of you reconnecting to church after a long absence. And this time, it's not just, I want to go to church. No, it's you're beginning to ask, what does it mean to be part of a church family? Anticipate that God will accompany you, that he will meet you in this movement. See, this is what gives Nehemiah the courage to step toward Artaxerxes and asks. He believes that God will meet him along the way and the gracious hand of God was with him. Jeff, I don't find this encouraging at all because that's Bible land. I mean, people pray and then it's just open door, open door, open door. That doesn't happen to me. Well, I'm very thankful for the last verse Of chapter two, and the final experience, the fourth experience, because I'm telling you, Nehemiah is going to experience challenges and setbacks and obstacles. It's not just there is open there are open doors, but it's not just endless open doors. Challenges, setbacks, and obstacles. Experience number four is this: overcome obstacles. Overcome obstacles. He's no longer in Susa now. He's on the way, and he's delivering these letters. Letters for safe transport, letters that he's been authorized to rebuild the city. And so we see him on the way in verse nine. It says, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officials and cavalry with me. You know what that means? It means Nehemiah arrives on horseback with a military entourage, And he goes like, oh, here you go, signature of the king. I've been authorized to rebuild the city. And there are gonna be some people that are really upset about this and will do everything they possibly can to keep this rebuild from happening. Uh, Verse 10, uh, we get two names. It says, so when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite officials, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. These are regional governors. Think regional warlords and they don't want to see Israel grow in its strength, and they are very much deserved. Now, uh, disturbed. Now, you get two names there, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. In literature or in movies, this is what is called foreshadowing. It's where you see a character and goes, oh, you know something? I don't think we've seen the last of him. You're introduced to someone, go, I don't think we've seen the last of her. Sanballat and Tobiah are gonna to show up again and again, and again, and they will do everything they can to put this project to a stop. It's not just open door after, see, here we go. One of the biggest decisions we can make in life is to get moving. (laughs) But that has to be followed by a series of decisions to keep moving. And this, my friends, is called endurance. You endure. And the reason we need endurance is because you will discover that two counseling sessions will not repair the damage of 10 years of drift. And so you endure, you overcome obstacles. We endure in a job search because you'll often hear, no, we don't need you, no, thanks for applying, no, no thanks, not now, like a couple dozen times before you hear the yes you're looking for, and so you endure. You endure because you discovered that the way of Jesus cannot be fully grasped in a six-part Bible study course. It's a lifetime journey, and so you endure, overcome obstacles. i gotta ask you, I got to ask you a question. Is there any critical area of your life right now where you're, where you're just tired? It's exhausting you you know that God is calling you to this area, it's a critical area, and you just go, I just wanna be done, I just wanna be done. Jump with me, away from the world of Nehemiah to after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there are a group of new young Jesus followers who gone all in, we're gonna follow this Christ, we're gonna follow this Jesus, and then came uh, public shaming, confiscation of their property, loss of income, loss of friendships. They are discouraged and many of them are ready to go, forget it, forget it, forget it. And the writer of Hebrews in our Bible calls them to perseverance and endurance. And I personally, I love the image the writer does because the image he uses is race imagery. He challenges them to stay in the race when it's long and when it's hard. Hebrews chapter 12, end of verse 1 says this, says, and let us, let us what? Run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the author and the perfecter of our faith. What's interesting here is that when seeking endurance, he doesn't use the example of Nehemiah. He uses the example of Jesus. And the imagery switches here from race imagery to the imagery of the cross. Now, the the crucifixion of Jesus was a six-hour ordeal. Nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, six hours one Friday. Naked. Taunted. And exposed. Now, all of all of the words that could accurately be used to describe Jesus' crucifixion, of all of the words, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews used the word endurance. Endurance. For the joy set before him, he, he endured the cross. He despised despised, scorning the shaming that took place while he was on the cross, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy that was before him. I think part of that joy was you. He knew that his enduring that would be what was needed to get you home, for the joy he endured. And then the word is used in the next verse as well, verse three. It says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and so that you will not lose heart. It takes us back to the cross and it says, Look at what he endured. Now you endure. So that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart. My friends, I don't know where you're losing heart right now. I don't know whether you're just tired and exhausted. But this image of Jesus enduring this for you. uh, Here we go. Um, Jesus hanging in there for me should inspire me to want to hang in there for other people. Jesus hanging in there for you should cause you to want to hang in there for others. Endurance. Endurance. Watch Nehemiah as he goes. He hasn't even seen the rubble yet. That'll happen next week. He hasn't even de- uh, seen the devastation of the city yet. That'll happen next week. He hasn't even met the people that he will be rallying to join this major building project. That'll happen next week. This week we see him moving, and that's powerful. <laughs> he's sad, but he's moving. He's afraid, but he's moving. And he will continue to move through challenges, setbacks, and opposition. He's moving. He is moving on the foundation of trust that God will meet him in his movement. These two words today. (laughs) Start moving. Start moving. We ask the question, how do you get from there to there? How do you get from rubble to a rebuild? Start moving. Believing. Trusting. That you're not alone. And that God will meet you in your movement. Let me pray for you today. Gracious God, we give thanks for this story of hardship, difficulty, sadness, and movement. Use it powerfully in our lives this week. We ask. We ask for so much. We, need, we ask for courage. We ask for discernment. We ask for strength beyond our own strength. We ask for guidance. We ask for ideas that we don't have. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus, who endured so much for us. It's in his name that we come before you today. Asking for your sustaining grace. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Have a great week. A shadow in death and still, He has good plans. He has good plans for me. So I will take.